0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Today, uh, we are going to be um, uh, sharing a conversation with Corey uh, Clipston. So I want to first start, Corey, because I thought it would be wonderful to do a debate, to do a conversation between Peter Schiff and Michael Saylor. And so I have had both gentlemen on my podcast, both bring, as you know, diametrically opposed views. And I, as I said earlier, I keep getting kind of uh, pigeonholed as being, you know, a gold bug or a Bitcoin bug. I don't know. Are there such things? I know they're hodlers, but uh, do you call yourself a Bitcoin bug? Is that, is we, just,
2: a we just call them Bitcoiners.
1: Bitcoiners, yeah. Actually, yeah. So, uh, so I got accused of both things. Then I said, well, let's bring them both together. I'll be impartial. And, uh, and I secretly extended an invite to Michael Saylor, <clears throat> and he politely declined. And then Peter Schiff's folks. I don't know if Peter's on Clubhouse. Is anyone on Clubhouse monitoring to see if Peter Schiff is there? He is a follower of mine. Uh, Peter Schiff uh, then basically used the fact that Michael didn't debate him as evidence that Michael's scared to debate or whatever. And I said, I don't think that that's a fair assessment, even from a scientific point of view, uh, to assume that someone not wanting to debate you is a sign of uh, as a sign of uh, fear, or cowardice, or whatever. Leave that aside for one yeah. second. Then I also uh, wanted to remind people that Corey uh, tuned into my live chat when I got Peter Schiff on Clubhouse for his first appearance. And uh, and it sounded like, to the uninitiated, that Peter was just talking over Corey and not listen, letting him answer and maybe insulting him. And he may have been doing that, Corey, <laughs> uh, but part of the blame lies in my uh, lack of Clubhouse technological sophistication, and not being able to take questions except for holding them up to the microphone. So now we have a much better setup and now we're gonna let Corey really uh, take it away. And I asked Corey if we could have a uh, a kind of conversation from his perspective. Uh, Another precious metal is steel. And sometimes what we want to do is form steel man arguments to understand better where our opponents might be coming from because it helps sharpen our own arguments. So, Corey, for my audience, could you introduce yourself and give us an introduction to what you do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Corey Clipston, founder and CEO of swanbitcoin.com, um, which is basically like a retail-focused sort of uh, First place to buy Bitcoin, learn about Bitcoin in the United States. And then we also have uh, Swan Private Client Services, which is uh, an international service uh, for high net worth individuals and, uh, and companies around the globe uh, to buy Bitcoin. And um, I guess kind of a long career in, uh, in tech and uh, management consulting and finance. Worked for Microsoft and Google, McKinsey, Morgan Stanley, University of Chicago, MBA, uh, finance and entrepreneurship long, long time ago and um, got into startups while I was at Google in 2011 to 2013, started mentoring startups, and ended up moving to the West Coast, and uh, been in startup land full time since summer of 13, so about eight years now. I'm involved in 40-something startups as an advisor, investor, former operator, um, and fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole starting in early 2017 with the price run up, and uh, had it completely Backwards, thinking of it from a tech perspective, because all the people that I respected in technology basically had it wrong. Whether it was Andreessen Horowitz or Union Square Ventures, or you know, sort of all these tech people up in SF thinking that you know this was much more about tech than it was about money, and they they knew it was a bit of money, but I think it was kind of like they thought it was 80% tech, 20% money, and it's actually more like the reverse. It's like 80 to 90% money and like 10 or 20% tech, Um, and. So it took me about 11 months to get through what we generously call the altcoin horseshoe, starting with Bitcoin, exploring everything else, and then coming back to Bitcoin. And and what was really interesting about that journey for me is just how much I relied on the incredible educators that started coming into the space in 2017, 2018. So. You know if you're new to bitcoin over the last couple of years and you think that you know well safety's book was always around and there was always a stefan lavera podcast or a tales from the crypt podcast and you know a brady swenson doing citizen bitcoin like these things didn't exist jan pritzker's book came out in spring of or summer of 2019 like a lot of these things that are passed around that are just touchstones for bitcoin education didn't exist before and i was really inspired by that and you know i think the um The main thing that I say over and over again that I've been saying for a few years now is that, uh, you know, the uh, the amount of wealth that someone is willing to store in the Bitcoin protocol is highly correlated with their understanding of Bitcoin. And so that kind of led me to think, like, the way to sell Bitcoin is really just to, to educate people about Bitcoin and help them, you know, ramp up their understanding. And then they would want to buy a lot more. So this company was founded on that thesis that you could essentially just create a a media house or a publisher or something that was putting out tons of bitcoin content and helping other people put out bitcoin content newsletters podcasts videos etc produce some of your own content provide the back end for other people's content sponsor lots of content and uh, and basically just get the education up leveled and increase it and then if you had bitcoin for sale as part of that then uh, you'd probably do pretty well so that's how we have built the company coming up on a year we launched uh, at the end of march of 2020 uh, for, for SwanBitcoin.com SwanBitcoin.com, and uh, it's been great and uh, we'll probably start sharing some numbers uh, probably in q2 but holding off just for now but we're a team of about 20 people and uh, a lot of great Bitcoiners working on this, people like Gigi, you guys probably know from 21 Lessons, uh, Jan Pritzker, author of Inventing Bitcoin, Brady Swenson, Brandon Quittam, Bracky Von Bitcoin, Camilla Campton, uh, on and on, Reed Womack, and, and a bunch of other writers and, and producers. It turns out they all have other skills too, like they, <laughs> uh, they either code or they've done SEO, or they, or they can write and uh, so we kind of just figure out what Bitcoiners can do other than just talk about Bitcoin on Twitter and hire them.
1: There's more to doing uh, Bitcoin than just talking on Twitter. I seem to <clears throat> relish in my, uh, my, my feed now is now populated by, again, saying I'm a shill for one side or another, which to me means I'm doing my job of being impartial. But you know, of course, we don't want just comedy for comedy's sake. Not comedy. We'll always take comedy, but comedy. But one thing I really respect about you, Corey, and going over your, your work is that you are an educator. <clears throat> you obviously have some interest, obviously, uh, but you are impartial, and as evidenced by the fact that you come on the Into the Impossible podcast uh, to talk about sort of the bear case, the steelman case against your own point of view. And I have a lot of respect for that, because I don't know if somebody like Peter Schiff, again, I'm not sure if he's in Clubhouse. If he is, I don't mind saying this to him. I don't know if he can do it, and I don't know if he can take the opposite point of view for a variety of reasons. As I said, I don't blame him for you know, talking over you, because that was just awkward, the technological you know, limitations that we had. Although, as I said, he might talk over you if we were in person. And knowing him, he's, uh, he's gotten a lot of hate mail, et cetera. What I like is that you are capable of doing this, and you've taken on a role, which I think is really important. Normally, I don't know if you've watched any of my past episodes. I usually interview, you know, uh, Nobel Prize winners and uh, and uh, authors and so forth. And whenever I get an author on the phone or on the on the Zoom, <clears throat> as is more likely, I always ask him or her uh, to ignore the advice that people give you to not judge a book by its cover. I say, no, I judge books by their cover all the time. In fact, the publishing industry is predicated on that. I want to know, where did you come up with the name Swan Bitcoin? What does that have to do? Is that a black swan reference? What does that refer to?
2: Yeah, it is, it is a black swan reference. Um, I, I became a huge fan of Ms. Uh, M. Taleb's work starting in, it was 2002, I think, was when uh, Malcolm Gladwell had the first article about Taleb called uh, Blowing Up in The New Yorker, which uh, was about the same time that he put out his first uh, sort of widely available book, Fooled by Randomness. And uh, you know, Blowing Up was about him, about Taleb taking the opposite side of most of long-term capital management's trades, uh, or at least betting against the trades that they had on, basically. And it was just this whole idea that life is a call option, uh, and that there are free call options all around, free or cheap call options all around, and that if you understand how to take actions that limit your downside and give you unbounded upside. And you don't even need to be right very often. You can be right, you know, a tenth of the time or even a hundredth of the time if the payoff from the times that you're right is uh, so much larger than uh, the times that you lose. So, you know, I think in in film you saw this with, uh, you know, Michael Burry in the big short, you know, bleeding money for his investors every month as he had these big insurance contracts out, but then there's a huge payoff when he's proven right. So that's kind of what that's about. And then The Black Swan came out in, uh, I want to say, 2006, Mm -hmm. and uh, was just, uh, you know, exploded into popular culture. Uh, I bought a copy of it for my roommate at the time, who was uh, a mid-senior guy on the distressed bank loan sales desk at Goldman. And he proceeded to buy copies for his entire desk, which is kind of a funny story. I don't know if that maybe helped them get short subprime before the crash, it's possible. but yeah, and then Bitcoin came along, and obviously I, you know, the white paper was published nine years before I really went down the rabbit hole. I, I made the mistake of ignoring it when somebody gave me some in 2014. Um, but for me, you know, a lot of people think black swans can only be negative, but really it's just any outside outsized event that is uh, not forecast by very many people and that has a major impact, right? And that can be positive or negative. And so I see Bitcoin as being the largest positive black swan. Uh, potentially in history, but certainly for many, many decades, probably many centuries. So that was kind of the thesis there. And then once we started hiring more people, you know, they have their own views on what it might mean. And uh, Jan and some of the other folks are pretty partial to the idea that Bitcoin at inception, you know, in the darknet days and Mt. Gox and all of that was maybe a bit of an ugly duckling. And now it's uh, this beautiful white swan that's taking flight. So it kind of works in that way as well.
1: Of course, you know one of Taleb's <coughs> claims in that epochal book is that after a Black Swan event occurs, people say, "Oh, in retrospect, it was obvious, um, and and that we should have known better." But of course, you know there's that hindsight is 2020. But as a risk management tool, I want to know from your perspective, how did you handle risk management prior to Bitcoin, and is Bitcoin the essential, the sui generis? Is there any other alternative? I know we have Bitcoin Tina in the audience, probably. But is there an alternative in terms of risk mitigation and hedging that could be useful, or is it basically Bitcoin Tina? Um, yeah, you're making
2: reference to there is no alternative, which is a, a great acronym used by our friend on Clubhouse and YouTube shows. Um, there's no other asset in the world widely available with a better risk reward profile than Bitcoin. So in that respect, if you're looking for that thing with the best sharp ratio or that thing that lives on the efficient frontier to kind of push out the total return of your portfolio or the total expected return of your portfolio while reducing that risk, uh, there's nothing better than Bitcoin and there's never been anything better than Bitcoin. So, yeah, in that respect, that's true. Uh, It's also true that it has, uh, you know, high volatility versus, you know, you know, properly constructed portfolios that may be more about wealth preservation or just make sure that, you know, you're just not comfortable writing it up, writing it down every few years or whatever form these these Bitcoin bull and bear markets take in the future. Um, You know, so I'm not sitting here saying that every single person with, you know, a billion dollars should be 100 percent Bitcoin. There are. All kinds of reasons that people may choose uh, because of investment horizons or just like uh, avert, you know, just being averted to um, having that much volatility. Um, But over time, you know, we expect that volatility will reduce as market cap increases. Those things should be, uh, you know, inversely correlated. So uh, I think as you get in, you know, five, 10 years out from now, you'll be looking at a much, much higher market cap and you'll be looking at much lower volatility. We've already seen. That you know volatility in pretty much any time frame, you know one day, sixty day, one year, whatever, uh, reduces significantly over time with Bitcoin.
1: Um, and when I had a conversation with Michael Saylor, of course he's obviously a very prominent bullish uh, advocate, um, oh, a relatively recent convert, much more recently than you. Uh, and he's gotten a lot of attention and I think a lot of flack, And it surprises me, just parenthetically, that. Peter gets away with basically accusing him of running a con job to suggest an uncorrelated asset uh, could have a place in the portfolio of many people. Uh, but before we get into that, I do want to sort of start down this rabbit hole of you know, talking about the intrinsic merit of this. And I'll take the side of the, um, uh, of the Bitcoin uh, bull Uh, While you take the bearish side, and we'll kind of see how that goes. But uh, before we do that, I did feel, uh, and I'm just reminding my audience on the Into the Impossible podcast on YouTube, uh, on iTunes, etc., Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, technically. We're talking with uh, Corey uh, Clipston, who who is the um, founder, director of of swanbitcoin.com. But also, you have a YouTube channel, too, that's pretty much thriving uh, in these times. What's the name of that, Uh, Corey, again?
2: Yeah, it's uh, youtube.com slash swansignal. Swan Signal and um, Swan Signal, yes. Yeah. So you just type in Swan Signal in the search; it'll pop up. And uh, yeah, we do a, uh, a pretty serious Tuesday show where we generally pair, you know, two pretty prominent Bitcoiners or sort of macro investing types. Uh, and that's that's live every Tuesday, and it's also a podcast. It's one of the top-ranked uh, Bitcoin podcasts, and charging up the tech charts as well, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then Friday is our more casual show. It's called Swan Lounge. Um, And that one usually is just a bunch of Bitcoiners kind of hanging out and talking about the news of the day and sharing bullish price forecasts and and ripping on no coiners like Peter Schiff.
1: (laughs) Well, he makes himself a very fat plump target uh, for most of this. Um, But one thing, you know, when I talk to Michael, I'm a scientist, I'm an astrophysicist. And when I would talk to him, you know, I would make this case that is actually going to be a bullish case for the dollar. And I want to make this uh, statement, uh, and, and before we put on the steel manning, et cetera, that the, you know, the number one fear of the United States government is true. It's probably deflation, that they're going to do whatever it takes to you know, keep their heads off the guillotine, probably including printing unlimited amounts of money. And we've heard statements that Neil Kashkari has said that they have an infinite amount of dollars. I didn't know there was anything in physics, uh, certainly is not known to be anything that's infinite. Except, as Albert Einstein said, the universe and human stupidity, although I'm not so sure about the universe, and he ultimately was right about that. Uh, but I want to make the, the bullish case on the dollar. Okay, So the dollar is, uh, is a very special entity, it is the reserve currency, it is fiat, that's true. Uh, however, uh, it has a certain type of, of uh, essence of proof of work. And that proof of work, uh, as I said to Michael Saylor, uh, goes by the name of nine, U.S. nuclear-powered uh, battle groups, aircraft carrier battle groups, each one of which is worth about a trillion dollars all in. If you include all the aircraft, the battleships, etc., the, or the uh, destroyers and the aircraft carriers, <clears throat> including all that, that's an awful lot of work <laughs> that went into generating those. We own, uh, you know, we have 90% of the military spending on Earth. We have an incredible influence on the world. Every country on Earth has positive associations, net positive. Of course, there's net negative. People think negatively of the US, I'm sure. Uh, but more people want to come here than anywhere else. It's only increasing. The US passport is incredibly valuable. People die for it, kill for it, etc. cetera. Um, there's a tremendous amount of stored value. And, uh, and I would say to Peter Schiff, I would say the same thing. I'd say it to Michael Saylor, and I am saying it to you. There is an awful lot of work that went into the accumulation of wealth in the United States and I, to say that it was going to you know, go to the moon or go to zero rather, I find that a little bit hard to swallow. So where am I wrong in that argument?
2: Well, you're thinking about the medium of exchange, the dollar actually being the capital, the accumulated capital. So it doesn't really matter what you measure, the value of those aircraft carriers and all the built up capital and buildings and factories and you know, the, the knowledge base in Silicon Valley and you know, MIT, Stanford, New York, wherever it may be the entertainment capitals of LA and Atlanta, like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what that's denominated in. Um, so I think that's probably the first thing. You won't find me saying, I mean, where we would agree, uh, and this would go like for any of the strat for like Peter Zion types or, or the case that you're making. I absolutely agree. There's like no chance that another fiat currency is going to uh, usurp the dollar's place as uh, the reserve asset. There's zero chance for the Euro, zero chance for the Yuan nothing else is close like we're it's the dollar unless until it's bitcoin bitcoin is so in line with the principles of the founders of the united states of america it's actually like the perfect money for like renaissance ideals enlightenment ideals for the ideals embodied in the constitution in the bill of rights etc i mean it really you have to remember like we didn't have the fed printing endless dollars like 1913 there was 100 Mm -hmm. years there we you know basically were fairly responsible there was a lot of free banking it was essentially a global gold standard for most of the second half of the 19th century and you know everything kind of flourished there was obviously like all kinds of you know bad things at local levels and not everybody benefited equally or whatever but you know you had uh oil increasing productivity by 10,000 X for factories and moving Mm -hmm. off of, you know, having to go hunt whales and things like that. You had electricity come to the fore, you had, you know, soap and vaccines and all these things, you know, in the early 20th century, um, you know, that were kind of completed. And so we all saw this amazing advancement. And the other thing that happened is, you know, basically from like 1800 to 1900 uh, things cost less a hundred years later. Um, So you essentially did have mild deflation uh, over that 100 years at the same time as having all this incredible advancement. So one thing that's just false is that the, you know, whatever you think of the United States, let's just call it some level of greatness or uniqueness or whatever, that that hinges on having uh, the reserve currency is provably false, it's empirically false. It's a tool and as with other previous empires that have had the global reserve currency, uh initially it's a great thing you basically can export paper or whatever you're, you know you can just print money and you can get goods and services but in the later stages of your empire and your your status as being the reserve currency you face the Triffin dilemma which anybody can go google and get into basically it's that uh, essentially you rot out your manufacturing base and uh, you're essentially kind of just rot from the inside as an empire that has the the global reserve currency so I'm actually really looking forward to a day uh, when we don't have the reserve currency, when we're on an equal, you know, a level playing field and the natural advantages of which there are many for the United States. And I could just tick off like some of the big ones, but, you know, things like having uh, more mileage of navigable waterways connected to productive farmland than the rest of the world combined. The US has about 13,000 miles, the rest of the world has about 12,000 miles of navigable waterways. So it's like the whole breadbasket. The interior, the interior former uh, <laughs> sea uh, from the old days that you know empties into the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, is just uh, all arable land, basically connected to uh, to deep rivers that go to the ocean. So, things like that, things like being you know protected on the on the left and the right, west and east, um, you know, and and not having to fight wars, nobody can come and like invade you from over the Pacific or the Atlantic. You know, it's really difficult to do something like that. So. Uh, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and kind of the, the the base level of society that's been created by uh, by the Constitution and the checks and balances. Like, So there's a lot of so, so social and political advantage there. Kind of the entrepreneurial spirit, the frontier spirit that's lasted for hundreds of years. I mean, it's not that long ago that, you know, Santa Monica had like 50,000 people and no water, you know, and now it's <laughs> slowly it'll turn into like Hong Kong on the beach over time, you know, and uh, people forget how young this country is. And uh, and I think a lot of these things, like we, we ebb and flow and New York goes bankrupt in the 70s and we have bouts of populism, but, you know, by and large, it reverts to the mean. And there are so many geographic and demographic and sociopolitical advantages to, to this place that having good money, I think, only increases advantages of the united states
1: oh yeah i see it as a hopeful sign people talk about it as if it's you know doomsday prepping and that's all it's good for and of course you have to admit i talk to a lot of people that search for extraterrestrial intelligence Mm -hmm. and those people also suffer from the fact that many people who want to believe in alien activity uh, being real also believe that aliens are walking around with prosthetic foreheads and and so forth so there are people that are correlated with the Bitcoin narrative that may be that kind of doomsday scenario and, and almost uh, anticipating it in some sense. But fundamentally, I think that Bitcoin represents a type of freedom. And we have so, yes, it's true, we are founded, we are the oldest democracy, right? And, uh, but but actually we have very few rights, you know, that are pure, undiluted, unmolested, un, uh, so to speak. And I think, you know, that the aspect of freedom is actually where we can go out, jump off to, because on the, on the bear side for Bitcoin, one of the things that we talk about all the time, and I talked about this with Michael, is uh, the biggest threat, you know, being maybe our own government who may not like us to have so much freedom with where we spend our money, and accuse people like yourself or others of wanting Bitcoin because its usefulness at its base layer could be traced to black market nefarious activities. So, let's talk start there. Uh, I don't know if you have a you know kind of a, a, a plan of, of addressing things, but. I'm very interested to know in this. How do we know that as with gold, and I brought this up to Peter, it's not like gold hasn't been confiscated by the US government. Anyway, oh, it wasn't really, they didn't come to your house with guns. Yeah, they probably would've, you know, you would've gotten a lot of trouble. Yeah, they didn't come to your house and take all your alcohol either. But, you know, I'm sure there are local politicians, as we've all learned, that would be all too happy to put people that are using uh, gold back then or Bitcoin now. So dispel that rumor or that myth. If it is a myth, maybe it's not that Bitcoin um, you know, as an existential threat from right here in the good old USA.
2: So is the question here, would the government, or which is made up of normal people and humans that can read and decide things on their own, uh, would the government decide to essentially do the boots on next thing and go door to door and try to extract no. Not even Bitcoin that. Ad, Bitcoin private keys from people's heads.
1: No, 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 not not that. But they would be a windfall because yeah. you you agree that in order to do something with Bitcoin, one of our listeners is saying he's at a coffee shop now that accepts Bitcoin, but it takes five to ten minutes to process the block. Um, so you have to convert it. Maybe you don't, but but a lot of cases you have to convert it, and they could do what they did in the 70s and 80s with oil speculators and declare a windfall profit tax because yeah. uh, you know that is. An, we, we, an got a, we got a, we gotta
2: we gotta level you up so you can very quickly decide not to put uh, idiotic things like that and leave them up on your YouTube channel um, for too long. Um, So I I will address that very quickly since you bothered leaving it up for a while, but uh, there's no such thing as like immediate final settlement for dollars either. So if you pay for something with Cash App or with Visa or whatever, obviously that's just an entry on an internal ledger and they're extending you credit basically and they have your information and but you get a 1099, sure get those right? dollars. You get a ten ninety nine for it. So I'm I'm talking about paying in dollars. Paying in dollars oh. at the coffee shop with a credit oh, okay, card. Fine. I'm right? just saying the taxable.
1: Yeah, go ahead.
2: What I'm saying is you're gonna pay for that at the end of the month, right? Um it's not final settlement like immediately. And so Saying that Bitcoin, you know, you don't need to use the base chain. You can pay with Lightning Network and settle that up later with non-chain uh, transaction. You can also just swap out dollars, euros, yen, or whatever, and use, you know, as you've seen with Mastercard and Visa's plans internationally, adopting, you know, their, their plans to adopt cryptocurrencies as um, as payments. You can just swap out the symbol and just run an internal ledger using Bitcoin and just settle up every now and again between large companies. Um, so this whole idea of like Bitcoin being used for coffee—that's not really what it's for. I'm just like saying say somebody
1: it. is on YouTube saying that he's purchasing. I'm not going to dispute what he says.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't do that. It's silly. I wouldn't bother with that. Yeah, but, but never, that, no yeah. reason to use on-chain Bitcoin to buy coffee. Co- Bitcoin is for buying coffee plantations, not coffee. Okay,
1: fair enough. <laughs> uh, but at but, least
2: on on-chain Bitcoin, on-chain Bitcoin.
1: Okay. So the difference uh, that you're saying. Not to worry uh, in that I have sold, you know, my microscopic uh, Satoshi, one Satoshi, and immediately I got, you know, it was in the end of 2020, I sold a a Satoshi (laughs) or two. And I, I, you know, a day or two later, here's a cash app or whatever, and here's your 1099. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, what if it was like a lot of money? And what if the government weren't so friendly uh, and declared that this is some special windfall? That has happened in the case of what is called speculation. And if it's not a currency, as, as I think I agree, um, then it is an investment or it is subject to capital gains, and why would it mm. not be a plump well, they published the rules, they published the rules
2: in advance, and it's a very important part of our system, at least in this country, that you can't change the rules after the fact. Well, actually, sorry, Corey, I can't, I can't
1: before. let that slip. I actually did get taxed in the state of California, as I assume you did. In 2012, mm-hmm. the state legislature put into effect a tax that was retroactive, and I felt that was unconstitutional, but apparently you had to have a lot of people dispute that. At the state level? At the state level, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is that is like the worst kind of government. I wasn't here at the time. Okay. I don't know what that was. But uh, yeah, I mean, you should have gotten, you should have marshaled all your resources for a bunch of uh, pro bono constitutional law professors to come and, and write against something like that, because it's absolutely idiotic to do something like that. I, in, I know, agree. It's but... fair law. Anyway, I mean, this this uh, it's treated right now as a as a you know a capital asset basically just like any other investment. And so, just like you know, if stocks go up or Bitcoin goes up and you sell it, then you're going to pay a short-term capital gains tax if it's uh, you know within uh, the first year, or or long-term capital gains uh, if it's after 12 months. So that's just how it works right now. So again, it's so early in the development of Bitcoin on its path to monetization. We're basically in that store of value stage, and really it's early in the store of value stage still. Um, And then it'll move into being a much more widely used medium of exchange, and then eventually I'd expect in kind of the 15-ish year range, something like that, to be a very widely used uh, unit of account as well. So those are the kind of the three stages of monetization of a new asset.
1: So just remind my listeners on YouTube, there's over 100 people on different channels, Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, Twitch, I think I'm on Twitch, uh, Corey. You'll be very proud of my technological mm-hmm. acumen. Uh, we are on Clubhouse as well uh, with the f- uh, very well known Corey Clipston, who is uh, going to break down the scenario, which I originally thought was stood for food, but I think of everything in terms of food, Corey. Uh, but it's actually FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So those are the three prongs of the Triton that is used to skewer uh, Bitcoin advocates. Can you walk us through each one of those? What is the steel man argument against Bitcoin in those three different axes or dimensions as we say in physics?
2: Um, I mean, that's really just like a bucket term for anything that's sort of like an anti-Bitcoin argument. And uh, going back to uh, Peter's uh, brief and and fiery appearance on on Clubhouse on your show last time, uh, what was interesting is it was kind of a compendium of all of the greatest hits, all of which have been dispelled uh, from the last ten years or so. It was kind of almost everything that's ever been said uh, negative about Bitcoin and every sort of worry that somebody's ever come up with. Uh, it was kind of funny because um, Gigi uh, on on Twitter, der Gigi D E R G I G uh, I. So if you search him and Peter Schiff, you'll find it. Uh, actually typed furiously and, and did a big tweet storm of basically everything that that Peter said. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I. I actually expected you to trot them out, but I can try to remember you know, some of the things that people say about Bitcoin. Um, so you've obviously got the one we just addressed, which is yeah. you know, kind of the, uh, the Cash crowd that's kind of confused about what money actually is and the fact that you can't be a medium of exchange without it actually having value. And that it can't actually have value unless you have, you know, in, in the long term, nothing will have value unless it actually has that proof of work and actually has that decentralization. And, you know, historically, the only money that's been adopted in that fashion was gold. And now we have something that's better than gold Uh, and fiat never has succeeded. Like the the longest running fiat currencies have been, you know, max like 90 hundred years. And we're probably near the end of, of the dollar's usefulness as a store of value, even though it's still being used as a medium of exchange. Everybody's sort of running from it and all the smartest investors say cash is trash and uh, essentially try to just keep like as little dollars on hand as possible. It's just working capital for paying immediate bills and everything else should be in in some other asset that doesn't waste away. So that's why we need uh, a better money, a sound money. trying to think of uh, other things that people say like, you know, the government's going to shut it down. Well, the government can't shut down the Bitcoin network. Uh, They could actually shut down the internet a lot easier than they could shut down Bitcoin because Bitcoin is actually a ledger. And essentially, as soon as computers were reconnected, then people would just reload the ledger and you'd be off and running again. So only if you shut off the Internet forever uh, and shut off always and mesh networks and satellite communications or people using smoke signals or passing notes to each other, you know, human ingenuity in the face of uh, tyranny and oppression is, is pretty spectacular to behold. And as long as there's a copy of the ledger and as long as there's a shelling point around people believing that that really is the ledger that um, is the fair and correct way to uh, keep track of uh, the wealth of people and companies around the world, then you'll always have Bitcoin, it's really uh, unkillable. Um, What they may say is like, yeah, you could make it really difficult on a country by country basis or jurisdiction, each jurisdiction could do something nasty like shut down exchanges or make it really difficult or tax gains heavily or whatever it is. Um, That's not really how the game theory uh, plays out. Uh, If you do things contra massive, contra uh, basically against technological developments that are spectacular like what Bitcoin is, you fall behind very quickly. You have a competitive disadvantage versus all of the other countries and jurisdictions that adopt the new technology. And so it's really, you know, it's the smart countries that are forward thinking that are moving very quickly to adopt Bitcoin and realizing, you know, each, each person in each company realizing individually, oh, wow, this thing has legs. I want to place a bet here. I want to make some money here. And now you see all the banks coming in. Well, who pays for the politicians? The banks, right? And you know, do you think that Coinbase, with their hundred billion dollar uh, direct listing in a couple of months, isn't going to have lobbyists? Do you think that you know J.P. Morgan, who's banking all of the big crypto companies now, isn't going to have lawyers? Isn't going to make First Amendment arguments about Bitcoin just being free speech? Like, there's, it's too far gone. The train left the station so long ago in the West, at least. We'll see what happens I and mean, then we see that India has tried yet again to ban Bitcoin. What's gonna happen there is the same thing that's happening in Nigeria. Nigeria banned Bitcoin, everybody's still using Bitcoin and it's trading at a 40% premium. It's proving that you know their fiat currency, their local fiat currency is basically worthless, which is exactly what's going to happen in India as well. And then they'll be forced to capitulate and come back in as China has you know, three or four times already.
1: China brings me to another topic that brings up fear, and that is the so-called threat of a 51% attack. Um, I've heard about this. I'm sure you are far more learned about it than I am. But uh, but walk us through that scenario as a potential steel man against Bitcoin, not for gold. I'm not talking about fiat. Yeah. Go for it. Oh,
2: yeah, don't care much about gold. but. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not the right person to get into like the deep technicals, but at the end of the day, uh, a lot of people have this misconception that a 51% attack, which is essentially having like unfriendly or dishonest, uh, you know, nodes uh, basically blocking transactions that people want to put through or trying to roll back the chain, it's something that uh, that has to be sustained over a very very long period of time and costs an immense amount of power. Uh, to do that, so we know we know how costly it is to run this Bitcoin supercomputing network around the world that's a hundred times more powerful than any other computing network, and to be able to roll back transactions and really like affect confidence in the chain costs so much money to do that, and it it really doesn't make any sense because you'd make so much more money. The, like the economic incentive is really just to participate as a good actor and use all that hash power to earn Bitcoins rather than trying to kill the network. So there's a game theory thing there. There's an, an exorbitant cost thing there. There is uh, you know, the lead time of being able to get a hold of enough ASICs, application-specific integrated chips. So these, these uh, Bitcoin, these computers that are only good for one task, which is mining Bitcoin. To be able to amass enough of those without everyone else in the world noticing that that's happening and that then driving up the price of Bitcoin and making your attack spectacularly more expensive, it just is not something that you need to worry about whatsoever.
1: Mm. And uh, in terms of other arguments that go around uh, frequently, this Notion obviously, yes, of, of other countries doing it, but I've never felt that was a very persuasive argument because unless all 175 countries around the earth do it, uh, you'd always be able to find a place where money goes where it's treated best, right? That's the old expression. Um, my other question, you know, revolves around this debate that, and again, I'm not, Peter's not here, maybe he is, I haven't checked Clubhouse. Uh, a reminder we're talking to Corey Clipston, who needs no introduction on clubhouse certainly or on um on youtube but to my audience and the into the impossible podcast we are welcoming him to talk about uh basically a response to some of the discussions that we had with peter schiff a week or so ago and peter schiff as you may have noticed got the attention of elon musk recently and they had a very active twitter exchange i actually had my video producer put together a uh kind of compendium of these tweet storms between elon and Peter, and I actually offered to moderate because I was the first person to get Peter on Clubhouse, and here he is with the chutzpah to ask uh, Elon Musk to be on Clubhouse without me being there. Uh, so anyway, I said, Peter, you know, you should really let me do it. Uh, but I listened to the, uh, I watched the, uh, the tweet storms back and forth, and it really revolved around this, this kind of concept that Peter calls the, the digital token. Can you s- explain that aspect of things, that this is basically vaporware? It's sure it takes a lot of energy, and then Peter was saying last week, as if he's a huge environmentalist. Oh, it's really bad for the environment to spend all this money on energy. Let's ignore that. But let's just say it, it takes a lot of energy. So what? You know, second law of thermodynamics. You know, it says we we can't even quit the game. You always lose, and you can't even win, and you have to stay in the game forever. Uh, but I want to ask you, what is actually? the response to that argument the digital token you're collecting these digital beanie babies but worse because beanie babies actually are made of uh, beans? I don't know. Uh, how do you attack that? I think, what,
2: I think what that argument supposedly is about is uh, is intrinsic value and Peter claiming that you know there's this large amount of intrinsic value in gold and which really if you actually look at the history of money and how it actually develops gold was chosen for money because it actually had characteristics that were good for money. It actually is, uh, you know, it's it's scarce, has a low stock to flow ratio. Uh, it's hard to find more of it. Um, it is, uh, you know, it is divisible enough where you can kind of like like slice it up. It's durable. Um, it's one of the most stable elements in the periodic table, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like, you know, five or six characteristics of money, 14 if you uh, listen to Andy Edstrom, maybe five or six if you listen to uh, Safety and Robert Breedlove. And, um, you know, gold rates very highly on those, and that's why it was adopted as money. And its adoption as money was why it was adopted as jewelry. And it's why we think of gold as like, you know, good as gold and, and this sort of show of wealth. So that uh, that correlation, uh, I should say they have the causation backwards. Uh, people that think that, you know, because it's jewelry is why it has value. It's it's actually it's because it's it's been used as money for so many thousands of years is the reason that people use it for jewelry because they want to show off their wealth on their wrists and on their necks etc so that might be the first thing and then the second thing is um the idea that some that money would actually want to have uh you know productive value or intrinsic value uh you know is, is actually false and it's only because you know we didn't have something like bitcoin previously that uh that that fallacy is it has taken so long to be laid bare. So now we actually understand that something with hundred uh, percent of its value actually being the monetary premium uh, is is actually better because you're not crowding out productive use. And what you can see with uh, all these other commodities over the years that have been you know attempted to be uh, you know that people have tried to use for money is uh, you know you're competing, you're basically competing with productive use when you want to use it for money. And if you actually have a better money, you might as well just use those things you know, for filling teeth or for circuits or whatever it is. But essentially, the 90 plus percent, maybe more, maybe 95, 98 percent of gold's value that is the store of value premium on top of its productive use uh, essentially will go away over the next few decades as uh, Bitcoin soaks it all up.
1: And when we uh, think about the uh, comparison of Bitcoin, not only to gold, I think it is fair to talk about other coins uh, that are out there. People are asking in the chat room on YouTube. Uh, of course, there are, you know, kind of, uh, uh, shall we say, frivolous coins that have come up, and there are other coins that are not so frivolous that have a huge market cap. So I'm thinking in particular of Ether. Uh, which I know you said you don't want to discuss in great detail because uh, of your. Well, you can describe why you don't want to talk about those too much. No, if we can, we can talk about it a little bit. Okay, let's go for it. So I think they actually have some interesting features. The little I know about them, I'm not a big uh, investor in them. But I actually think there are some things that Peter didn't understand. And and if you recall from my debate with him, I kept asking him, like, Peter, you can't hand me a triangle. Like a triangle doesn't exist. It exists in the human mind. So therefore it has no physical value. It has no actual tangible, visceral behavior. However, we all know what a triangle is. There are other things that have no um, that have no materialistic association, uh, but are worth a lot of money. And in fact, there's trillions of dollars invested around this around the world. I gave the example of escrow, hand me escrow. You can't hand me escrow, it's, it's a contract. It's, it's some sort of um, way of, of, of mutually assuring transactions take place. I find that aspect of some of the alternatives, as I understand Ethereum is is capable of that or was predicated on that in some sense, and it has a huge market cap. Um, What's wrong with that? Um, Besides just that Bitcoin is better, I don't think that's an actual germane argument because there may be other purposes just as Bitcoin has a purpose and gold has a purpose. You're not denying that. You're just saying Bitcoin is superior. So besides the fact that Bitcoin is superior to Ether or Doge or whatever, what are the virtues and vices of these alternatives?
2: Well, you know, just to put a a nail in the argument on gold, like gold has a use in industry, and it has a use. It may be like, as Bitcoin Tina likes to say, like there'll be trinkets because it is shiny and it is cute, but those things will cost, you know, like children's toys in the future. Um, What will go away is that store of value premium and that monetary premium for the asset. Um, So the altcoins, the 10,000 coins that have come and gone, uh, the coins that make up the, uh, the rest of the pie when you look at a stat like Bitcoin dominance. Um, so I, I do wanna make a point there, which is that uh, there's survivorship bias in the crypto space that includes majority Bitcoin and then call it, you know, depending on where you are in the market cycle, you know, 20 to 40% altcoins uh, as far as total market cap. And basically what it is, is almost all the coins from 2013 are gone. And most of the coins from 2017 are gone. And in 2025, most of the coins from 2021 will be gone. And essentially what these are, are basically affinity marketing scams or schemes, trying to get some of the heat and some of the shine from what's going on with Bitcoin, which is a true proven innovation that's actually doing exactly what it purported to do and has been doing since network launch on January 3rd, 2009. Whereas not a single other token is actually performing in a truly decentralized, you know, capable of withstanding, you know, state intervention. You can take down any of these very, very easily. They can be turned off by their management teams. They can be taken out by government action. You can't do that to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is actually decentralized.
1: But aren't they so kind of like fail in that sense, Corey? Or aren't they like, who's going to care about, you know, something that has a market well, cap I mean, of 800 million? You know, if, if they've
2: been selling unregistered securities, which, you know, by the Howey definition, they all were, SEC has already indicated that, you know, at least at time of sale, Ethereum was a security. And that's kind of obvious if you look at the look at the law. They've kind of been given sort of a pass, not actually from the SEC, but from like one person at the SEC in twenty eighteen said they thought that Ethereum was like far enough along that it's more or less decentralized now. Yeah, even Michael um, mentioned
1: that to me. Sailor.
2: Yeah, maybe. We'll see. Anyway, I don't think they're gonna go back and, and do anything about it now. But a lot of these other ones, you know, have to you know, essentially play play a lot of legal jujitsu to set up how they, uh, you know, essentially launch these tokens. And you can't just sort of create these things that benefit from the efforts of a centralized group, where the investors and the team that founds it uh, profit from their collective endeavors, which is the definition of a security. So you got to be really, really careful with that. One argument is basically that none of these non-Bitcoin blockchains are decentralized enough to withstand. Uh, you know, state pressure and they're just not um, not really useful for anything other than being slow, uh, relatively you know, semi-decentralized but really in the end still centralized databases so blockchain technology is decades old and is is slow and is expensive and you'd be better off for almost all of these use cases just running it on AWS or some other kind of you know, database system Um, let me give kind of a, maybe like an economic argument as well. Like the addressable market for for money, for store of value that Bitcoin is going after is, you know, sort of on the low end. Let's call it like $200 trillion. And this is just in terms of, of today's market for store of value. This does not end in real dollars, by the way, not nominal dollars. And aggressively like $400 trillion. Uh, everything else, you can call it like smart contracts. You could call it fintech. You could call it like making it easier to sort of like create you know, coalitions or cooperation or consortia or whatever it is, like all of that stuff uh, just has, you know, a potential market cap of orders of magnitude less. And these things are all unproven and are essentially at best, you know, maybe like early stage venture bets that are way overpriced and at worst, as we've seen over and over and over again, outright scams. So that's kind of the, the main argument against altcoins you know the place that i'd say like fine whatever is like if you're a professional trader and you were before you got into crypto and you're very successful at it and you have great tools and you're not what uh real traders would derogative derogatorily call a click trader which means somebody that actually used their hands and essentially you're using algorithms things like that like sure it's it's a great way to make money hopefully you store your profits in bitcoin all of my friends that are traders in this space, many of whom are very well known, and I talk to you know, if not daily, at least a couple times a week. Um, you know, their long-term stacks, their long-term store of value is in Bitcoin, and their denominator, their goal, their base money is Bitcoin, and the return, the rate of return that they're tr- measuring themselves against and trying to beat is Bitcoin. So, even the best altcoin traders are already using. Bitcoin not only as a store of value, not only as a medium of exchange, but also as their unit of account. And that's the people who know altcoins the best, and they're already choosing Bitcoin as the money.
1: And uh, just, um, you know, not germane to um, to Bitcoin specifically, but there are, just from a technologist's point of view, do they have, are there interesting uses of blockchain? Uh, we've heard about these, what are they called, NFTs or NFTs. G's or something like that, uh, non fungible things. <clears throat> We've heard about Bitcoin. Yeah, that's, blockchain. that's the latest.
2: Yeah, it's non non fungible tokens is basically the latest narrative coming out of Ethereum, which is kind of like requires a new narrative to spin up every year or two to keep the long running scam going. Um, so the latest one is NFTs. They've actually been around for a while. There were companies founded around this, you know, back in 2016, 2017. They have, I think it's ERST721, if I recall, is uh, is sort of the non-fungible, like unique digital object, token thing, whatever. Um, you know, I don't have any, I don't, ha- it, it's, it's a hard one because I actually, ha- there are Bitcoiners that want to see NFTs on Bitcoin. And then there are some, I'm just now paying a little bit of attention because you kind of have to, because people ask about it a lot. Uh, there's a very strong argument that you can never, ever bring uh, any sort of like valuable ownership of anything offline, you know, or, or art, let's say, uh, onto a decentralized, a truly decentralized blockchain. I'm just not deep, deep enough into it to, to say that. What I do know is that let's say that those problems get solved and I did want to buy unique digital art or unique digital objects I would never, in a million years, buy one that was secured by anything other than the Bitcoin blockchain, because I'd have absolutely no confidence that I would be able to pass it along to my heirs or have it, you know, be worth anything in thirty-four years or whatever. Yeah, that, so, does.
1: <clears throat> that does. Ethereum
2: seem- is just not secure.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was the subject of some kind of a attack, as I remember, uh, not too long ago. Uh, but that brings me to another one of Nicholas Taleb's uh, famous theses. What I love about Nicholas uh, Taleb is that you can get uh, almost the entire value of the book just from the title. So we talked about the black swan influenced swan Bitcoin. Uh, there's another one that's influencing Keating coin, which is, uh, which is called anti-fragility, uh, which I'm gonna make fragile coin. No, I'm not gonna do that, I'm just joking, Corey. Uh, but uh, there is this notion of something is anti-fragile if it actually benefits from stress. And I see, and I mentioned this to Peter, you know, because the argument is, and now you're gonna take up this side of the argument, Bitcoin's only been around since 2009. Um, It hasn't seen true, you know, uh, super cycles in the market. How can you put so much trust in it? And I told Peter, it's been through at least a few bear and bull cycles. When I became aware of it in 2017, you know, it was 3,000, then it went to about 17,000, then it went back down to 3,000, then it went up. So it's been through many cycles. Does that not count? As an anti-fragility encounter, that Bitcoin comes out victorious, or am I wrong?
2: Um, I mean, that is definitely like in the pro column. Um, I think looking at network incentives and looking at the the different players and the way that they've reacted to different uh, stressors from the outside, uh, I think kind of shows shows the game theory of of the network and the system and how the players. You know what their incentives are and how they how they should do it right so you even saw uh that the users the people actually running nodes had more power than the miners when the miners tried to fork off right and and tried to push through uh you know the nya agreement and and basically double the block size and that's what caused the split with uh, bitcoin cash and bitcoin sv and however many more of those are forked into now um and so that was the user-activated soft fork and essentially putting, putting through, you know, a pure, more decentralized version of Bitcoin. And the users actually had that incentive. And that incentive to protect Bitcoin has been there from the very beginning. And it's actually not all that hard. In retrospect, it was very heated at the time, but it wasn't all that hard if you think about it. It didn't, it didn't involve, you know, tons of, uh, you know, major strife, major spending, none of that. It really was just education and, you know, some social media and a lot of, you know, podcasts and writing that marshaled these people to see the truth and to win the day in the favor of of keeping Bitcoin intact um, as opposed to going off in the wrong direction. So I love that that just keeps on happening. And then when you see, you know, I think the anti-fragility is, is basically, you know, he talks about... Um, probably the dividing line between, you know, fragile or robust and anti-fragile is whether something is alive or not. And that's when it's kind of fun to look at Bitcoin and to say like, wow, this thing really exhibits the characteristics of something that is alive. It may be the first truly alive thing that we as humans have actually created uh, that didn't come from life before. Like we've cloned things and we've made things out of bacteria or whatever, all all the stuff that you're friends across uh, in the in the building next door have figured out in the bio department or whatever but you know this is something that actually is alive and that none of us can do anything about it you know and in that respect you know this this should and it is attracting a lot of the singularity folks now because they're realizing that you know this thing this thing lives and we all kind of work for it and adjust to it and bitcoin changes you you don't change bitcoin
1: so that brings me to my final question before we move on to clubhouse uh, solely onto Clubhouse for the remaining half an hour or so that I have. Uh, and that's a question I ask Peter, and I ask many of the colleagues who uh, grace me by coming on the Into the Impossible podcast, ranging from nine Nobel laureates, four billionaires. I don't know. You might be the fifth. Uh, who knows, Corey? Uh, <laughs> you're not saying. Uh, but the, uh, the people that come on, oftentimes they have uh, sort of an opportunity to talk their book. In other words, they're Going to promote something which may or may not be uh, proven we hear this a lot i was tweeting today about all these references to god that physicists make who are predominantly atheist and it's kind of interesting to me that they invoke the name of god uh, in order to justify some of the uh, claims that god has attracted around him or it or whatever you want to say about this uh, supernatural force of nature if it, it does indeed exist anyway one of the foremost exponents of that was stephen hawking who wrote one of the most popular, popular science books in all time called The Brief History of Time. The very end of that book, he references God. But the point of that book is to dispel the need for God via these theories that he came up with, which I won't get into in this conversation. I talk about it quite frequently in my podcast. And I view that as an example of confirmation bias, that he so wanted to disprove the existence of God for whatever reasons. Maybe he was angry, maybe he loved God, I don't know. I don't care. But I wonder, to what extent can your belief, credulity in Bitcoin be shaken? Is there anything that could uh, falsify the bullish hypothesis that you support, or is it intrinsically unfalsifiable?
2: I mean, I guess it would only be the facts on the ground, which would really be like Bitcoin going to zero and nobody buying it. So many people so much smarter than I am for the last 12 years have spent so many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours collectively thinking of every potential threat and either figuring out why it's not a worry or actively working to mitigate the threat and working on Bitcoin to make it stronger. This is not something that is static. This is something that develops over time that you know takes all of the best developments from outside. And if it fits, then they bring it in. They look at every potential threat as they identify it. They changed Bitcoin to make it stronger. And, you know, it's, uh, it's really hard to, to I mean, uh, by definition, any, any threat that is uh, a worry to Bitcoin at this point lives in the fourth quadrant. It's an unknown unknown. We already know and have mitigated collectively me, not personally, any probably, but (laughs) I've been working hard on mitigating the threat of like any sort of government action against Bitcoiners, at least in the United States. That's kind of the the one thing that I work hard on. Um, And I just think that chance is now vanishingly small, given what's happened over the last year. Um, But uh, yeah, I, I can't think of something. None of us really can think of a reason. And that's why these, you know, the the credible fudsters don't really exist anymore. It's just kind of like a clown's gallery that are marketing their own thing. You know, it's just people trying to stay in the spotlight. Whether it's Peter tweeting about Bitcoin between five and eight times a day on average um, when he's supposed to be selling gold but doesn't have a leg to stand on, or it's Nuriel Rubini like trying to stay relevant when he's just a disaster, or it's you know one of my favorite authors, thinkers, philosophers—probably my favorite in all three—Taleb. Uh, But, you know, he's got a personal beef with somebody who wrote a Bitcoin book and decides to take that out personally on Bitcoin. And, you know, he doesn't sound like the Taleb that we know and love from his books. When he tries to trot out these worries about Bitcoin or these attacks on Bitcoin and Bitcoiners, he just sounds like some dude at the bar that's had too many, unfortunately. Um, I don't think that'll last. I think eventually, like when he sits down and, and thinks about things, like he usually thinks them through and generally ends up correct. I think that's, that will happen with Michael Burry. That will happen with Taleb. And I think the only people you'll be left with are the people that have uh, businesses to market and need free media, essentially, to market their businesses. And those will be the only people left arguing against Bitcoin. And it's a vanishingly small number of people, and there's no one credible doing that anymore.
1: One final question. I know I said I already asked you one question, but what would it take for you to sell your Bitcoin or, you know, what, what, what kind of scenario can you envision? Where oh, just you... not,
2: not, having any, not having anything else to sell. Like if I didn't have anything else to spend, that's when, you, that's when you sell Bitcoin is when you don't have anything else to spend. And even then, it's starting to look like you could probably do what, you know, the owners of Manhattan apartment buildings do or what NFL franchise owners do, which is you basically just take out super cheap loans secured by the, an appreciating asset. And you essentially like rack up debt for the rest of your life, and you never ever ever sell the asset. So it's very possible that all these people that are buying Bitcoin today will never ever 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 sell.
1: Yeah, and that maybe last question, the last last question of this stream. Uh, so normally with an asset that you know, I if I had some insider tip, and I had true conviction in Bitcoin, which I don't, but if I did, I wouldn't be telling you to buy it. I'd be buying it all myself, or I'd be buying as much as I can. And to what extent you know, does, does that contribute to this perception that there is such a, such a uh, very, very passionate group of people who are working extremely hard? Do you feel that you know, people look at, uh, look at it and say, well, why are you promoting this? Is it, is it to benefit people? Is it circling back to the very beginning of our conversation? What is your mission? I asked Michael. He says he wants to educate a million minds. You, as I said earlier, are a teacher, in addition to whatever success you have as an investor or as, you know, as, a, as an exponent and, uh, and uh, owner of a business. But um, where do you see it going? What are you gonna use this wealth for? I asked Peter, I asked Michael Saylor, what is the purpose of wealth to you, Corey Clipson?
2: I mean, beyond sort of like meeting basic needs of yeah. my family, I think, you know, at this point, I'm just so fully immersed in trying to make Bitcoin happen and happen, you know, as soon as possible, and spread as far and as wide as possible. And I don't think that we know what the new problems are going to be. We can we're thinking them through and having lots of conversations about what a Bitcoinized or a post-hyper Bitcoinization world looks like, and also what opportunities there will be when you have fair money that's global and you know essentially a friction-free uh, global economy and all the productivity that gets unlocked by that. Where we see something along the lines of you know essentially like a deflationary economy that's much more equity based and kind of the getting rid of debt. You'll either have zero debt, you'll have like 90% less than you do today, something like that. All those global debt markets will shrink. So, so many things will change and so many things will inherently get better in a Bitcoinized world that I have a lot of trouble working on anything else other than this right now, because I think this is the most important thing going on in the world today. So I'm pretty much just like focused on like my family, my friends, you know, maybe donating here and there to, you know, people's causes when it comes to my attention, but otherwise focused completely, both personally and professionally on Bitcoin. And I think it's really important to note that I would say 95% of the people that I know working in Bitcoin uh, were hardcore Bitcoiners first before starting to work in Bitcoin. They don't start working in Bitcoin, and then develop like this, you know, roster of arguments in favor of Bitcoin that has causation completely ass backwards. And is the type of thing that you would get when a marketer with a poor product is projecting their own motivations onto another group of people. So when you hear altcoiners saying that Bitcoiners are trying to run a Ponzi or that, you know, well, they're only in it because of their Bitcoin bags, or you see gold bugs you know, trying to project something onto Bitcoiners as they try to shill their bags, their gold bags, they're completely missing out that almost everybody working in Bitcoin can't work on anything else
1: because this is what they really, really, truly care about. And they cared about it long before they started working on it. Corey, I want to thank you so much for going into the impossible and educating my listeners who don't usually get to hear. Although lately, I have to admit, I've been having a lot of uh, Fun talking about it, but um, maybe we'll talk someday about the scientific applications of this. And I want to point out that thanks to Corey and thanks to me, Bitcoin is now $50,000, six, $50,620 at least, according to my iPhone. Corey, thank you so much for going into the impossible.
0: Yes, yeah, my pleasure. See you soon. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hello. I'm Stuart Valko, producer of Into the Impossible. If you enjoyed this episode with Professor Brian Keating, please let us know by subscribing, commenting, sharing, and most importantly, reading and leaving reviews. It really helps keep our universe expanding. We appreciate hearing from you and read every review and comment. We're always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. And join our premieres every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for live chats. Follow Brian on Twitter, Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's DR Brian Keating. For free access to exclusive content, please visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at BrianKeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Viri, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valco and Brian Keating. For more information on the Arthur C. Clarke Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu.